This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Today I'm going to be sketching for you the thought of St. Thomas Aquinas on why God became man. Aquinas spent his entire lifetime pondering this question, and what he left for us is powerful. It's rich. It's profound, as I hope to show, at least a little bit. So let's begin then with the first point on the outline there, the incarnation as a work of art. For Thomas Aquinas, the driving notion for understanding the motives of the incarnation, of why God became man, is the technical Latin term is conveniens. We can translate it as fittingness or wise ordering or even internal coherence. Here he was introducing nothing new as he was following in a long train of medieval thinkers going back at least to Peter Lombard of the mid-12th century. Still, the notion of fittingness, convenience, takes unparalleled prominence in Aquinas' treatment of the Incarnation. Indeed, in his comprehensive treatment of the person of Christ, which occurs in the third part of the Summa, so, you know, his great work, the Summa Theologiae, comprehensive treatment of the Christian faith, in there is a comprehensive treatment of several doctrinal elements of the faith, including the person and the work of Jesus Christ. That's in the third part. So there, the very first notion he treats is this notion of the fittingness of God's becoming man. Translation, the notion of fittingness is so crucial to understanding the person and work of Christ that it must be the first thing we consider. Understanding Christ, his person, his two natures, his work of salvation, begins at the door of fittingness. Fittingness is the gateway, if you will, into understanding the nature and the work of Christ. So, what gives? Why is this the case? Interestingly, the answer provides a window into a side to Aquinas that is rarely appreciated. Thomas Aquinas, of course, has a justly deserved reputation for being one of Western tradition's towering intellects, for being a man who penetrated deeply the truth of God and of natural reality, and for passing on the fruits of that penetration. Of course, the Summa Theologiae is the crowning achievement of that effort. For all of that, there is also an aesthetic or artistic side to Aquinas, as he was a man who was certainly drawn to the beauty around him and certainly the beauty of the Christian faith. What I want to suggest, in other words, is that a theology of aesthetics is showcased in his treatment of the motives of the incarnation, of why, in his mind, God became man. Really, in fact, a theology of aesthetics is at the core of his entire Christology, of his treatment of Christ, as the notion of fittingness or convenience, as he uses the term, runs throughout his entire treatment of Christ and throughout his entire theology of the sacraments as well. Here Aquinas gives an account that focuses more on the beauty of the incarnation than so much on the truth of the doctrine uh, of the incarnation or on its in, in, uh, intellectual coherence. Though certainly there is intellectual coherence to the Incarnation, since whatever is truly beautiful is also true. Philosophers and theologians sometimes speak of the so-called transcendentals, the beautiful, the good, the true, the one. And these are all understood to be properties of God, and they're convertible with God's being. They're really only distinct relative to us. So whatever is beautiful is also good. Whatever is good is also true. Whatever is true is also beautiful, and so on. All right, and that, it is then the path of beauty that Aquinas offers for his presentation of the motives of the Incarnation, which I think is rather advantageous for us today, because for a culture that is really kind of hamstrung in endless debate over what is true, over what is good, there's a greater chance of agreement, perhaps, over what concerns the beautiful. Why do crowds flock to see the Sistine Chapel? Has anyone been to the Sistine Chapel? 
Uh, it's always crowded with people. Sometimes, incidentally, when you leave the Sistine Chapel, you end up going through the modern art section, and uh, you might notice there are not many people there. Uh, and uh, it, it's it's no mystery to uh, understand why when one sees what's on display there. My point here is not to not to uh, diss uh, modern art, but to uh, at least uh, you know make it clear that there is there is something truly objective about art. It's not simply in the eye of the beholder, and you see that by just looking at the crowds, the the uh, countless number of people that uh, flock to the Sistine Chapel. And while there might be serious disagreement over whether Michelangelo's account, say, of the Final Judgment or of the creation of the world, is true. Would there be any disagreement that the painting is beautiful? What I'm suggesting, in other words, is that Aquinas looks upon God's becoming man as a kind of great work of art, as an artistic masterpiece, a kind of theological or doctrinal masterpiece, if you will. So with that said, let's just think about a work of art for a moment and just kind of bear with me as I, as I uh, flesh this comparison out. Think of how, first of all, a work of art begins with freedom of choice and of how things follow necessarily upon that choice. So Michelangelo, for instance, looked for just the right slab of marble for his statue of David that he had in mind. In fact, any of you who know anything about the history of the statue of David by Michelangelo know that the, the uh, slab of marble that he used was notorious for having lain about neglected for 25 years because it was considered to have too many imperfections. Certainly, he could have used uh, many blocks of marble, but this would have altered his carving. He had just the type of sculpture in mind, and this necessitated, as following a, upon a could-have-been-otherwise choice, just the right type of marble slab. And, of course, the sculpture he had in mind was a completely unexpected one. It was completely unprecedented, something like the Incarnation. He wished to carve David not after having slain Goliath. This is how David had always been portrayed beforehand, or at least the David in the showdown with Goliath. He didn't want to portray David after having slain Goliath, but say, what? This is unheard of? How are you going to do this? Before slaying Goliath. All right, second, think of how Michelangelo accomplishes such a sculpture or how he accomplished his final judgment painting, where every particular element is well thought out and that it is seen to fit within an overall pattern with the result that the work as a whole is a masterpiece arrangement. It is this well-ordered side of the whole where the whole truly is greater than the sum of its parts that is so impressive about a great work of art. Or consider a Gothic cathedral, if ever you have seen one, to which, incidentally, Thomas Aquinas' Summa Theologiae is often compared. It's often compared to a Gothic cathedral. They were both uh, erected or established at the, the, uh, the same time, the 13th century. Uh, there was a British tour guide at the Cathedral of Chartres in France who was famous for spending two hours on one stained glass window alone. And he did that just to use that one window as, a, as an exemplar of, of all that's packed into all the stained glass windows. Let me just give you an idea by choosing this one and let me spend some time upon it. Now, that's, again, just one stained glass window among many others. And the stained glass window is just one component part of the entire building as a whole. All of which, all these intricate parts are woven together into a masterful arrangement. And you are certainly meant to take in the, the cathedral as a whole, even in as much as you are meant to notice and, and to take in the individual components as well, or take in the final judgment as a whole. Imagine what you'd be missing if you didn't. The example of Michelangelo's David or the Cathedral of Chartres helps to frame, I think, how Aquinas uses the notion of fittingness as a way of understanding why God became man. Like a work of art, the incarnation begins with freedom of choice on God's part. As Michelangelo could have depicted David in any number of ways, so could God have saved us in any number of ways. Stands to reason, doesn't it?
If he wishes to save us, then he can save us in whatever way he, he so chooses. So here I direct you to the outline then and look at the first text I have for you. Aquinas writes, God in his omnipotent power could have restored human nature in many other ways than through the incarnation. He says that right at the beginning of his treatment of Christ in the Summa Theologiae. And so if we say it was necessary for God to become man, and by necessary we mean couldn't be otherwise, such as the sun and its shining, sun, it would not be possible for the sun to do anything other than shine, or couldn't be otherwise in the sense that the end cannot be without it, as the preservation of life cannot be without food. This is the example Aquinas gives. So then Aquinas writes, it was not necessary that God should become incarnate for the restoration of human nature. So if by necessary we couldn't have been otherwise, then it certainly was not necessary for God to become incarnate to save the human race. But Michelangelo wants to depict David in what he considers, according to his artistic ingenuity, the perfect or the best way. And so once he makes this choice, a David staring at Goliath with an air of confidence born of his unflinching faith in God and trust in God's providence, then certain things necessarily follow. The height and the shape of the marble slab, the one that was considered to have too many imperfections, in fact, the pose of the man, the gaze on his face, the type of instruments to be chosen, etc. Aquinas says it's the same with God. He wishes to save the human race in the best or perfect way. Of course, God's judgment is infallible. And so, quote, this is the next text for you. In this way, it was necessary that God should become incarnate for the restoration of human nature. In the same sort of way as it was necessary that Michelangelo choose that marble slab to accomplish his, his sculpture of David. And as the execution of a work of art necessitates a well-ordered plan, a masterful arrangement where every intricate part fits into a masterpiece whole, so too the incarnation, which follows upon nearly 2,000 years of salvation history, when, after the course of many centuries, man had, and this is quoting Aquinas here, it's on your outline, man had come to see how much he needed a deliverer. And when, quote, the more numerous was the band of heralds that had preceded him. That's a quote within a quote. He's actually quoting a uh, medieval commentary there on the Bible. That is, after Christ's coming had been prepared and arranged all throughout, throughout nearly 2,000 years. So we find this patristic notion of typology. I don't know if you've ever heard this term. It was deeply influential on Aquinas. It uh, means that all the great figures of the Bible were types of the Christ who was to come. Abraham, Moses, Joshua, David, Isaiah, Jeremiah, the list goes on. This was the, quote, band of heralds that preceded him. And to be a herald, of course, is to announce, to proclaim in some manner. So Moses is a type of the Christ to come. He announces Christ's eventual coming by being lawgiver, because Jesus would give the new law by being deliverer. Jesus would himself be deliverer, but instead of delivering from physical bondage, as in Moses' case, he would deliver from the bondage of sin, from spiritual bondage. Joshua is a type of Christ insofar as he leads God's chosen people into the promised land, and that foreshadows Christ who would lead God's people into the true promised land, the heavenly promised land. So salvation history, you see, is a masterful arrangement. Just like Michelangelo's final judgment or the Chart Cathedral is a masterful arrangement. And what sits at the center of Michelangelo's final judgment masterpiece? What sits at the center of the Chart Cathedral? It's, of course, Christ himself. In the case of the cathedral, it's the altar on which the Last Supper is reenacted. And according to Catholic faith, Christ is truly present when the bread and the wine are converted into his very substance. So, too, at the center of salvation history, marking the crowning achievement of the whole artistic masterpiece is the incarnation, the fact of God's taking on our common humanity. So, we find Aquinas marveling 
at God's becoming man. And here you can look at those next texts I provided for you. This is what he says. Quote, nothing more wonderful could be accomplished than that God should become man. He says that in his commentary on John's gospel. Then in his other Summa, the Summa Contragentiles, the Summa that he actually wrote for non-believers, he writes, again, the very same wording, and I provided it for you in Latin there, nihil enimirabilius, nothing more wonderful can be considered than the divine achievement of the true God, the Son of God, becoming true man. Nothing more wonderful can be considered than this. Notice he doesn't say nothing more true could be considered, though he certainly could have said that. Then finally, the other passage, also from the Summa Contra Gentiles. If we consider the mystery of the incarnation carefully and reverently, we shall discover a depth of divine wisdom that surpasses all human knowledge. As according to the apostle Paul, who says, the foolishness of God is wiser than men. 1 Corinthians 1.25 Hence it is that those who consider this mystery with reverence discover more and more its wondrous coherence. Now I've translated there wondrous coherence. What is the the Latin admirabiles rationes? Literally means the wondrous reasons to show again that this beautiful masterful arrangement, there's, there's intellectual coherence. So coherence that appeals to our minds as much as it appeals to our spirits. This language, incidentally, is very unusual in Aquinas. He does not often speak this way. And by it, he offers a glimpse, I would say, into his own appreciation of the beauty, the wonder of the incarnation, and thus of his own Christ-centered spiritual life. I think, in other words, we have a glimpse into Thomas Aquinas' very own prayer life, and and that what we have in his treatment of the motives of the Incarnation is not simply the fruit of intellectual labor, of theological reflection, but also, and especially, I think, it's the fruit of prayer. It's the fruit of living in real personal relationship with the person of Jesus Christ. When he says, the more and more wondrous aspects of this mystery are made manifest, I think this is what he's he's, uh, giving us uh, a clue into here. One more introductory note, the incarnation, because it, quote, surpasses all human knowledge from the passage, the last passage I just read for you, it marks an article of faith in the strict sense of the term. This helps explain, I think, why he chooses the way of beauty rather than the way of truth as the best path to appreciating why God became man. As a strict article of faith, the incarnation, and certainly the motives of the incarnation, remain beyond rational demonstration as such. There's no logical proof that we can offer to show why God became man. Strict reasoning isn't going to get us very far when considering the fact of the incarnation. Note in this connection how St. Thomas takes his cue in that passage, that last passage from the Summa Contra Gentiles, from 1 Corinthians one twenty-five. That's the passage where St. Paul famously makes his case for the divine folly on display in the crucified Christ. At first sight, holding up a dead man on a cross as our Savior seems like pure folly, pure nonsense. After all, death by crucifixion marks a cursed death according to Jewish law and a heinous penal death of the most gruesome, torturous sort according to Roman law. It's the ultimate sign of human weakness, of human limitation, of the human inability to overcome his worst enemy, death, and his own source of fulfillment. That is the human inability to be his own source of fulfillment. And therein lies the key, according to St. Paul, since God wants to prove to us that only he can save us. And if we're saved through a death by crucifixion, it can only be by God's power and might, not our own. Thus, St. Paul recognizes a higher wisdom at work in Christ's death, a divine wisdom. Only God could orchestrate such a way of salvation, thereby freeing man from the illusory trap that he can save himself, that he can be his own savior. Looked at on a purely human level, this confounds human wisdom and smacks against human reason. It seems like folly. Such higher wisdom is therefore only accessible to those with faith, 
to those whose minds rise up to the top, to God's level. For Aquinas, the act of faith is somewhat analogous to hiking up a mountain, where I studied in graduate schools in Switzerland. I have lots of experience hiking mountains. I live in the Northeast, continue to do that. And anyone who's had the experience of hiking up a mountain knows how vastly different the, the perspective and the panorama changes when you reach the top. Right? Consider just the entirely new and expansive perspective you gain when you get to the top. Everything changes. So it is with the faith. It's, it's like our minds being lifted up to the top of the mountain, seeing all reality in a whole new way. The gift of faith, the gift to believe that we are indeed saved by Christ's death and resurrection, sees this at first sight folly for what it really is highest wisdom. Reason alone will never get us beyond the wall of folly. As it is with Christ's death and resurrection, so it is, Aquinas suggests, with the incarnation itself, with God's joining himself to human nature. Reason alone will not get us to God's becoming man, as reason alone will not get us to the mystery of the Holy Trinity. This helps explain, I think, why Aquinas considers the way of beauty rather than so much the way of truth, the way of strict logical argument that best opens the inner coherence of the incarnation to us. And let's be clear, because there is an internal coherence to God's becoming man, this article of faith is not contrary to reason, but is in fact in accordance with reason, since anything again that is truly beautiful is also true. So this article of faith, as with all articles of faith, it may be beyond reason, but that doesn't mean it's against reason. We are not asked to shut our minds off in believing in the incarnation. Assenting to the tenet that God became man does not mean assenting to some kind of irrational myth. And I say that because, of course, that's often how the faith is, is understood or it's kind of perceived in the sec very secular culture in which we live. That faith involves uh, first of all, it's, it's, uh, it's a private act. It's a feeling. It's not an act of knowing. For Aquinas, faith is an act of knowing. Uh, and it's, an, it's for people who are, are given to, um, say, a superstitious way of looking upon life to myth. Aquinas does not see it this way. I can't stress that enough. In fact, really the whole project of the Summa Theologiae is to show that the faith as a whole and every aspect of it, there is a coherence to it. And he's convinced that there is nothing in the faith that can't be given some kind of coherence, at least shown that it's not contradictory. Okay, so let's turn then to the second major part, and that is the reasons themselves for God's having become man, the, the fitting reasons that Aquinas offers. So as we consider the fitting reasons, or again, the beautiful reasons for the incarnation, keep in mind that Aquinas, at least in his mind, is only scratching the surface. He expressly says as much. At the same time, he offers multiple reasons from multiple perspectives. So the first motive, the first reason that he gives for the incarnation is what we could call the Neoplatonic motive. As this operates on the Neoplatonic principle that the good is diffusive of itself, bonum est diffusivum sui, that is that the good of its very nature seeks to spread itself out, to share itself. Okay, so a, a woman who has just gotten engaged, what does she naturally want to do? Tell the whole world. You know, if you, if you ace an exam, especially one that you haven't, you're not expecting to ace, you want to tell everyone, you want to tell your, your family and your friends. The good of its very nature seeks to spread itself out. This is a Neoplatonic uh, motive. It's um, Neoplatonism, if you're not aware, with it, it, aware of it, it was a recovery of sorts of Platonic philosophy in the second century AD with an, a special focus on the spiritual dimension of the philosophy of Plato. And there was a it had a deep influence on some of the early thinkers of the Christian faith, including St. Augustine, the great St. Augustine. It was, in fact, instrumental in his conversion to the Catholic faith. But also this figure that Aquinas cites here called Dionysius. We actually don't know who he was, but he lived about 500. Okay, so let's read this text then that Aquinas gives. The very nature of God is goodness, as is clear from Dionysius. Hence, what belongs to the essence of goodness befits God, 
and it belongs to the essence of goodness to communicate itself to others, as is plain from Dionysius. Hence, it belongs to the essence of the highest good to communicate itself in the highest manner to the creature. And this is brought about chiefly by his joining created nature to himself. And there he's actually quoting Augustine. The second motive is what we could call the hylomorphic motive, as this operates on the principle, quote, it is most fitting that the invisible things of God should be made known by means of visible things, end quote. Aquinas says that at the very head of his treatment of Christ in the Summa Theologiae. So I call this the hylomorphic motive because hylomorphic, it's a technical word. It just names the fact that the human being is a matter, form, body, soul, material, spiritual, composite being. So we are a a composite, a union of both body and soul. The body is material, physical. The soul is immaterial, it's spirit. And in human life, the union between body and soul is such that the body is the necessary medium or go-between for everything we know and love. All our internal thoughts and desires come first through our sense experience, our experience of the bodily world around us. Here, Aquinas shows himself very much the Aristotelian. This is a very Aristotelian way of understanding how human knowledge and human choice and human love works. And yet, at the same time, of course, Aquinas is using Aristotle in ways that the Greek philosopher never could have dreamed of. So just think for a moment of your ideas about God. Certainly, these ideas are in your mind, and your mind is a spiritual faculty, since the human mind is the power of the human soul, and the human soul, again, is spirit, spiritual or immaterial, for which reason we can have thoughts that transcend the material. But the soul is not a free-floating thing. We're not angels. It does not operate independently of the body. So your ideas about God, though these ideas are transcendent, how did you first come to have them? Where did they originate? From what you heard, say from your parents, with your ears, or what you read with your eyes, say the Bible. Or consider the notion of tree or treeness. Though the concept of tree is universal, common, that is not tied as such to any particular individual tree, and thus transcended from all particular material trees, it nonetheless comes first from your having had sense experience of individual trees. So we gather in that sense data, and then your mind is able to abstract out a common idea. Thus, if what we know of God comes first from our sense experience, what would mark the best way of knowing and loving God? Knowing and loving God in material form having concrete bodily contact with God himself as we have it with any other human person. Many years ago, there was a movie uh, called Oh God with George Burns. Uh, he was a comedian. I don't know if some of the older people in the crowd remember this, but uh, George, Sir George Burns, a comedian, plays God. But the basic premise of the movie is, would it be nice if God were one of us, concretely present before us, speaking to us in our language that we could see with our eyes, hear with our ears? Christianity has been professing this for 2,000 years. God had that idea first. Indeed, this is what the incarnation means. So in this hylomorphic vein, Aquinas gives several reasons for why God became man. And these match up with the actions of knowing and loving. They match up with how a person with a body knows and loves knowing and loving God and what pertains to human salvation. So you might also call these the psychological motives as they operate on the view of what man as an embodied being needs relative to God and uh, from a psychological point of view. So call them the hylomorphic reasons or the psychological reasons. Okay, so let's look first at the motives based on the human need to know and the human way of knowing. So the first motive then, since faith is a type of knowledge, again, for Aquinas, faith is a type of knowledge. It's knowing about God. It's not a feeling. Namely, the knowledge that God has of himself 
and us, and which he imparts to us or gives us a share in. This is what the gift of faith is. It's our sharing in the knowledge that God has of himself and of us. The body of knowledge that comes with faith is more certainly known when it is given to us in bodily form by God himself. So, you tell me, which is better, someone who speaks on behalf of God, such as a prophet, or someone who speaks who is God? So, let's read this passage then. With regard to faith, this is made more certain by believing God himself who speaks. Therefore, that man might obtain perfect certitude about the truth of faith. It was fitting. Read, it was a beautiful thing that he should be instructed by God himself made man, so as to receive divine instruction in a human way. He says that in the Summa Theologiae and in the Summa Contra Gentilis. To receive divine instruction in a human way. That's the key phrase, since the human way of receiving instruction is through the senses, by means of our ears and our voices, and through concrete embodied interaction. <coughs> the second motive since our end, the purpose of human life, is to be with God fully and immediately. This is what we call in theology the beatific vision, is to see God face to face, as the New Testament says it, and thus to have all human need and desire utterly fulfilled. Since that is our end, yet since we are not proportioned to this end, Aquinas likes to say there is an immeasurable distance between us and God. God is infinite, eternal, perfect uncreated. We are created, finite, very imperfect, temporal. Because of this, we need to know with relative certainty, certainty that this immeasurable distance can be bridged and that we shall gain a full participation in the divinity, which we do when the uncreated God joins himself to created human nature. So let's look at the next passage. Humankind's perfect happiness or beatitude consists in seeing God face to face. Now, on account of the immeasurable distance between human nature and God's nature, one might deem it impossible to reach the state in which the human intellect is immediately united to the divine essence. This is what it means to see God face to face. But when he knows that God consented to become personally united with human nature, he is convinced that he can be united to God by his intellect, or by his spirit, if you will, so as to see God face to face. Summa Contrasentilas. Then in the Summa Theologiae, it was fitting that God should become incarnate, or it was beautiful, beautiful thing that God should become incarnate, as regards the full participation of the divinity, which is the true happiness of man and end of human life. And this is bestowed upon us by Christ's humanity. For Augustine says in a sermon, God was made man so that man might become God. Very famous line from Augustine there. And related to this is the notion of friendship and of how human, the human being is created to enjoy friendship with God. To say God is our end is another way of saying that to enjoy friendship with God is our purpose in life. But the problem here is friendship presupposes equality. That's why dogs are not man's best friend. Right? You have a pet at home, and you know we like to say that. I don't mean to suggest that you don't share affection with your dog, but your dog isn't a friend in the proper sense of the term. You'd have to be able to share your thoughts and your hearts with a dog for that to be true, as you can only do with another human being. Okay, But we are, of course, hardly equal to God. Again, the immeasurable distance that separates us from God. Aristotle, the philosopher, in fact, this is why he said friendship with God is impossible because friendship presupposes equality. Enter the Christian faith. By taking on our common humanity, God makes himself equal to us. And so Aquinas writes, friendship is based on a certain equality. And consequently, it would seem that those who are very unequal cannot be united in friendship. And so, in order that friendship between man and God might be more intimate, it was good for man that God should become man. Thus, we have Jesus himself saying in John 15, 15, No longer do I call you servants, but I have called you friends. 
This is a remarkable statement. It's a wondrous statement. Imagine if Aristotle had heard this, because this is, this is the infinite, eternal, uncreated God who is calling us here his friends. The third motive. Before the incarnation, humankind often got it wrong as regards the true dignity of our nature and reduced ourselves in two kind of fundamental ways either to the level of common animals, inasmuch as we held up the enjoyment of bodily goods as our chief end in life, eat, drink, and be merry. And isn't that what the modern world holds up for all we need to be happy? Wealth, fame, power, sex, honor. Or we reduced ourselves through worshiping, in a, uh, not the Almighty God, but worshiping instead aspects of nature, such as trees. You see that in Norse mythology, or the sun and the moon, or angels and demons mistakenly considered gods in the ancient pagan religions, the supremely irrefutable proof of the true dignity and goodness of human nature and of our true end, which is the immediate vision of God, is God's clothing himself in our humanity. Consider how great is the worth of our nature and that God finds it worthy enough to wrap himself in it. And joining himself to our nature, not accidentally, like I'm joined to this quote, he doesn't wrap himself in it like I have this jacket on, I'll take it off again. It's not an accidental union, it's a substantial union. The second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, is now forever after human. So Aquinas writes, man's worth, inasmuch as he is destined to be blessed with the immediate vision of God, is most fittingly, or most beautifully, indicated by God by his joining himself immediately to human nature. Hence, we find that as a result of the incarnation of God, a great number of people gave up the worship of angels, demons, and all manner of creatures, and even renounced the pleasures of the flesh and all bodily goods, and gave themselves to the worship of God alone. As Pope Leo says in a sermon on the Nativity, Learn, O Christian, thy worth, and being made a partner of the divine nature, refuse to return by evil deeds to your former worthlessness. End quote. The fourth motive. Consider how we naturally observe others and imitate their actions, and how we hold up models to emulate. It's human nature to do this, isn't this? Parents certainly know uh, the importance of setting a good example for their children to follow how it's so deeply embedded in our nature to look to others and to model ourselves after others. And it's a telling commentary on a given culture when we look at the types of models that it holds up for emulation. So in our culture, who would they be? Athletes, movie stars. Okay, but since our end is God, it should be models of virtue and holiness that we hold up for imitation. This is why, of course, people of faith hold up the saints. But could there be a greater model than a God-man? A model that would be infallible on account of his divine personhood? So Aquinas writes on the outline, We are incited to virtue by word and example. And one's example and word incite us to virtue all the more efficaciously, all the more effectively, when we are firmly convinced of his goodness such as the saints. But it was not possible to be infallibly certain of a mere man's goodness, since even the most holy men have at times been found wanting. The saints would be the first to recognize their own shortcomings. So that man might be strengthened in virtue, it was therefore necessary for him to be taught virtue by the word and example of God incarnate. End quote. This is the what would Jesus do motive of the incarnation. And it's a recurring motif in Aquinas' Christology, the imitatio Christi, imitation of Christ, or Christ as the supreme model of virtue in Latin. It's the exemplum virtutis. These are phrases which recur throughout Aquinas' treatment of Christ. So the fifth motive. We have the psychological need to know with certitude that our sins are forgiven. And this occurs when human salvation is accomplished concretely right before us which makes it real and thus leaves it not in the abstract. Just like when you've deeply wronged a friend, you need to hear with your ears that your friend has forgiven you. So Aquinas writes, It was fitting, or it is a beautiful thing, for the human race 
an expedient for the gaining of heavenly beatitude that God should become man, so that man would receive from God forgiveness of his sins and be certain that God has indeed forgiven us, end quote. This is why we load our churches and our homes with religious artwork and images, especially in the case of Catholic homes and Catholic churches, crucifixes, because these serve as concrete reminders that human salvation and the forgiveness of our sin is not some abstract tenet, but was truly accomplished here and now right before us. The crucifix is like hearing your friend saying, I forgive you. The sixth motive and related to this last one, is the need to know that human sin has been atoned for. Now, atonement and forgiveness are not the same thing. And every parent knows this, incidentally, because when your children misbehave, you punish your children. And if your children say they're sorry, you say, I forgive you, but you still maintain the punishment because they are distinct. The punishment is making up for the bad that is done. In the case of sin, what we're talking about is that sin incurs a debt since we take away from the dignity that's owing to God whenever we sin. So we incur a debt to God on that score. But of course, God's dignity is infinite. So sin incurs an infinite debt. And only God can pay or atone for an infinite debt. But God has not incurred the debt. Mankind has. So what's the fitting way out of this dilemma? For a God-man to pay the debt incurred by sin. For a God-man to atone for human sin. And so Aquinas writes, The order of divine justice holds that sin cannot be forgiven by God without atonement. But no mere man was able to atone for the sins of the whole human race. Therefore, in order that the human race might be delivered from its common sin, it was necessary for atonement to be made by one who was both man, from whom atonement was due, and more than man, so that his merit would suffice to atone for the sins of the whole human race. Consequently, it was necessary that God should become man and thereby take away the sins of the human race. Okay, let's close then by looking at the motives based on the human, be- the human need to love or desire. So the first motive, since desire follows upon knowledge, you can only desire what you first know to be good and thus uh, something that's an object of desire. Knowing that the beatific vision or seeing God face to face can be attained gives rise to the desire for this end. Knowing that there's a chocolate cake sitting at home waiting for you makes you want it, makes you desire it. And this is what defines the theological virtue of hope. Well, not chocolate cake. That's not the good. The the good, of course, is God himself, to be with God himself. So Aquinas writes, with regard to hope, that is the desire for eternal life. With regard to hope, this is greatly strengthened by God's becoming incarnate. Hence, Augustine says, nothing was so necessary for raising our hope as to show us how deeply God loved us. And what could be stronger proof of this than that the Son of God should become a partner with us in human nature? Therefore, it was most fitting, it was a most beautiful thing, for God to assume human nature, to stir up man's hope for beatitude. End quote. The second and last motive, then, is in view of charity, which is the love of God. Love engenders love. When we see someone's love for us concretely manifested, it moves us to love that person in return. If I literally take a bullet for you, it will move you towards me. There's a story of St. Maximilian Kolbe, uh, a priest who was uh, imprisoned in Auschwitz. And there was a time when the Nazis on a certain given day... uh, were to uh, choose just some random prisoner to be executed, which, of course, they would often do. And in this occasion, Maximilian Kolbe, uh, the one that was chosen was a married man with children. And Maximilian Kolbe offered to take his place because he had no family. The Nazis honored that request. The man that he stepped in for, who did survive and was present for the canonization of Maximilian Kolbe, think of how he felt towards Maximilian Kolbe. Or there's the uh, example of Mother Teresa. Remember Mother Teresa? She tells the story of how she picked up a man in the streets being eaten with worms. He asked her why she was doing this to him. You know what she said? Because I love you. 
How to explain this love except charity, the love of God, born of God's love for us on the cross. Think of how this man, though, felt towards her and her saying that to him. So Aquinas writes, The desire for the enjoyment of a thing is caused by love of it. Hence, it was necessary for man who seeks perfect happiness to be urged to the love of God. But nothing is a greater incentive to love someone than the experience of his love for us. And God's love for man could not be proved any more effectively than by his becoming personally united to man, since what is characteristic of love is the union of the lover and the beloved, at least as far as this is possible, end quote. All right, so there you have it, Aquinas' presentation of the motives of the Incarnation as a work of art. But just so you know, Aquinas is fully aware that he has not exhausted the list of possible motives. He closes that chapter 54 from the Summa Contra Gentiles with this, and he writes nearly the end, uh, re- nearly the same at the end of his treatment in the Summa Theologiae, quote, From these and like arguments, we may conclude that far from being inconsistent with the divine goodness, it was most expedient for man's salvation that God should become man, end quote. Thank you, and I'd be glad to take some questions. Yes. Um, why does a very strong language in the section about atonement and its necessity go beyond fittingness, uh, like we were talking about in the beginning? So, you mean the question about how it, the, the strong language by way of necessity? Yeah. Yes, right. So, it's, it's very important that we understand. Remember, Aquinas says when we use the word necessity, we, we mean one of two things. Either we mean couldn't be otherwise, or we mean in view of a certain end, it's necessary. So I, I remember I gave, the, uh, I gave the analogy of Michelangelo, given what he wanted to sculpt for David, then it necessitated a certain kind of marble slab, even though, absolutely speaking, he was free to choose any other marble slab. He didn't have to choose. It couldn't, couldn't be an otherwise argument. So that's, that's how to read it. But, but it, is, it is strong language. It's very strong language. And this is what the gift of faith then. See how, it, for Aquinas, it's a lesson how the faith, even though these articles of faith, are accessible only by faith. They do open our mind to this higher wisdom, this higher vision of truth. Please. You know, in giving this talk, I'm thinking about the incarnation and divinity with the human nature. And I just kept started coming back to the Eucharist as an extension of this. I know you didn't talk about the Eucharist here, but Aquinas, it makes sense that if someone is so enthralled in God's love for us through the Incarnation, that the Eucharist would be a natural extension of that. God becoming into our physical world into a piece of bread, and then it becoming in union with us in, uh, on another level. And it, it just made sense to me that Aquinas, even amongst the saints, would you say he's one of the great Eucharistic saints? Yeah, the um, you know the question is about the Eucharist. You know, you know what he said on his deathbed. What is reported to have said, he said, "To you I have labored, for you I have worked what I have worked." You know who the who was? Are you the Eucharist? Because for him to say the Eucharist is to say the person of Christ, for the very reason that you gave. You use the word. Extension. This is the very word that Aquinas uses. He uses it in reference to all the sacraments. That the incarnation, that, remember, the idea here is that God takes up bodily, concrete presence among us because of the, our need for that. Well, that's not, that need is not just for a 33-year duration. It, it continues so long as the human race continues. And so it was in God's divine plan to continue the incarnation, the extension, which is another way of saying there is no way of understanding the sacraments, certainly from Aquinas' point of view, without seeing the person of Christ at the core of them, certainly in the Eucharist itself. So in this last, the, the, the last quotation that I, I provided for you, where Aquinas speaks of love for, for persons with bodies, love requires bodily presence. Think of a man and a woman in love. It's you know, if they're separated, it's certainly not sufficient that they're present to each other in each other's hearts, which they certainly are. They long for something more. 
Aquinas gives the very same reason for the for the Eucharist in the Summa Theologiae and his treatment of the Eucharist that it's it's to satisfy that need to be with our beloved God in physical form and to be so intimately united with Him that it's not just like with Peter with Jesus in the boat, but with the Eucharist He actually takes up His abode within us. So He doesn't merely He doesn't really want to walk and talk among us. He wants to abide within us. So, uh, what a God man. What a God man. Yes, please. Um, I really, I, I got a lot of the second part of it. I thought it was really good. Um, but I had a question about the logical connection you're making. Mm. The fitting reasons for God's having becoming man. You're talking about the, neo, the Neoplatonic motive. Yeah. The good is, is diffusive of itself. I didn't quite follow what you're talking about there. Um, specifically the part where you said, hence it belongs to the essence of the highest good to communicate itself in the highest manner to the creature. Um, I didn't follow that logical. Okay, so question is about the um, Neoplatonic motive. The good is diffusive of itself. So this is the the good of its very nature. So, like, first, sorry, I guess I can be more specific with my question. Yeah. The, I, the first two points make total sense. The very nature of God is goodness. Um, hence, what belongs to the essence of goodness because God. Yeah. Okay, I follow that. And it belongs to the essence of goodness to communicate itself to others, as is played from Dionysius. I don't know if I follow that. Um, what, what about the essence of goodness um, speaks to communicating itself to Right. Well, it's just, well, that's just a, a variation on the good is diffusive of itself. But what Aquinas is saying here is, is if what we're considering is relationship, which is what the Christian faith at bottom is all about, it's a relationship between God and the human family, then how does the, how does the good communicate itself? How, how does God, who is goodness itself, share himself with us? Remember, the argument is one of fittingness, coherence. It's not strict necessity. So it's, it's, it's more fitting then that he should share himself with us fully. And for human beings, that requires bodily presence, that he share himself with us in our humanity. It's not sufficient that it be merely spiritual, that it also be physical in view of our nature, in view of human need. That help? Sort of. Um, there's something you said there that, that was good. I'll come back to you. Yeah, and he. Um, so, and, and the, 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 the passage there, the, in the highest, uh, and to the highest creature. Actually, I think, is it because the, the essence of the highest good, um, or because it's the highest good, that it would communicate itself in the most fitting manner? Is that, is that I think the key phrase is the, in, the, in the highest manner to the creature. Right. The highest, the creature being man. Right. So, and because we're a, a body soul being, the highest manner is to take on a body, is to is to share himself with us in bodily form. Right. And, and I guess you're sort of saying that's not actually, that's interchangeable with the word fitting. Yes. Well, yes. Fitting yeah. For us, by yeah. Our nature. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. You know, I was thinking as you were reading about the incarnation as an article of faith, you know, human beings often view um, imperfections um, and as uh, um, as beauties, okay? And I noted that you said that Michelangelo had picked an imperfect piece of marble, meaning people had picked that. And I was wondering what you thought about that because, you know, Christ becoming man and he was divine and perfect. You know, do you think that that may be why we have such a hard time in some ways relating to that divinity? I mean, I know that I probably do. Yeah, interesting you say that. You know, there was a heresy in the early church called docetism. It was actually the very first heresy concerning the person of Christ. You know what was the denial of? What? His humanity. Right. Not his divinity. That would come next. Because we have such a hard time relating to this, but we need to keep a distinction in mind that Christ, though he was fully God, was also fully human, and those two natures were distinct, united into one person. So his human nature was imperfect in the sense that it was created. It wasn't all-powerful on its own. Uh, he was certainly sinless, but but he was a man like us in all things but sin, as Hebrews says, and uh, shares with us our weaknesses, our shortcomings, not moral shortcoming, but physical shortcoming, um, suffering, and ultimately death, fatigue, these sorts of things. So it's, it's deeply, you know, I wrote my dissertation on Christ's human 
emotions as a way of kind of getting over this or helping get over this roadblock that, that uh, you know, look in the Garden of Gethsemane. Would you be afraid if you knew that a torturous, unspeakably painful, torturous death was impending upon you? Would you want to flee from that? It's deeply human to do that. That's right. Jesus did himself because he was fully human. And yet he still submitted, surrendered to the will of the Father. So, uh, so yes, he has a human nature, but it wasn't, it was perfect in a certain qualified sense, but also imperfect in a certain qualified sense. The other thing that I was going to ask, um, you know, I, I, um, I can relate to the way of beauty rather than the way of truth. Oh, this is the inner cards of God because I'm moved by pieces of art. I'm moved by the beauty and things that I see. Um, and so oftentimes the way of truth is just, it's, it's ugly. You know what I mean? Truth can be harrowing, you know. A huge tidal wave, it, it may be beautiful, but the truth of the matter is it's probably going to drown you. You know, and I thought it was interesting, you know, that you chose that. Yeah, yeah. You know, Right. Well, think of the final judgment painting. Again, as as a as just a painting, as a work of art, it's beautiful. But if you look at the subject matter, that can be frightening. <laughs> to see Christ the judge there, and of course see see the the reprobate, the the damned on the one side and the saved on the other. And, you know, have you ever read Dante's uh, Divine Comedy? Read the Inferno? You know, and, and uh, same same sort of experience there. Um, yeah, <laughs> and it, but it's it's. Uh, I just I, again I'm. I'm I'm so um, intrigued by Aquinas, this great towering intellect, who yet chooses the way of beauty as the way to present the motives of the incarnation. Yes, right there, please. Uh, it's a little bit struck me when you said at the beginning of, I mean, is Christ becoming man and he retains his humanity for like eternity? Yeah. Uh, as a little bit of attention, everything is always higher than the body. Does Aquinas speak much of, um, I'm just curious. Yep. Um, the, like the human Christ in heaven, like Catholic. Yes, he does. <laughs> uh, he treats all the chief mysteries of uh, Christ's life. Uh, in, in fact, the, the, the whole Christological part of the Summa Theologiae, it's divided into two parts itself. The first is consideration of the incarnation itself, God made man. The second part is, it's called the Acta et Passa Jesu, the actions and sufferings of Jesus. The, 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 essentially, it's the highlights of the um, Christ, um, his life, death, and resurrection. And it ends, Aquinas ends with a consideration of his exaltation, his ascension to the right hand of the Father, and his sending of the Holy Spirit. So, and also uh, in the creed, when we say he, he uh, descended unto hell, he treats that by, um, by making clear that by, if by hell we mean place of the just, where the, the just of the Old Testament, if you will, the saints of the Old Testament, were awaiting the resurrection, that's where he went. Whereas effects, his effects were felt in the hell of purgatory, the suffering in the hell of the damned. Uh, so, yes, he, he does give treatment to, to that. So I encourage you to read it if you get a chance. <laughs> yes. I, I don't know if I can explain this right, but when I was um, thinking about the incarnation, I thought, well, God made our relationship with him very personal when he was incarnate. And um, when you spoke about the goodness and the beauty, how when we experience that, what we want to do is share it. We want to give it to others. It brought to mind um, a friend of ours is quite wealthy and he travels throughout the world, but he shared with us when he goes alone and he sees and experiences beauty in the world, these amazing things throughout the world, and he doesn't have anyone to share it with. He doesn't have a friend with him. It brings him to a loneliness instead of um, enjoy, enjoy. Yeah. And that's yeah. true with God. Yeah. Yeah, you're back to the first, you know, it's the question you're asking, yeah. that the motive yes. that that um, God, it's, it's in God's very nature to give himself. And where do we see that most concretely manifested? On the cross, of course. St. Paul makes that famous in 
In his letter to the Philippians, though he was in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God something to be held on to, but emptied himself. The Greek word is kenosis, to empty oneself of what one doesn't have to empty oneself of, to give up one's rights, so to speak, to lower himself, to subjugate himself. This is how we come to know who our God is and how awesome, how loving, how merciful he is when we see it with our eyes like that. Otherwise, how could you know it? Certainly the Greek philosophers didn't know this. Aristotle, again, ruled out the possibility of friendship with God because on strict rational grounds, he was correct. He didn't know a God who came to us, who who overcome that unbridgeable gap by himself overcoming it. You had a question? Yes, basically, uh, my question is um, in relationship to all the other questions that were asked here. And that is, I have a problem with um, Augustine. Not only here, but elsewhere, I have a problem with Augustine. But it says, God was made man so that man might be made God. And, And that for me, goes too far. I mean, yes, we are made in the image and likeness of God. I agree with that, no problem. But to be made God, I mean, isn't that going a little far? Okay, we need to be careful how we understand Augustine. He does not, the phrase that man might become God, he does not mean that in the strict literal sense of the term. It's not a metaphor either. You know, and this is this is deep. This is deeply uh, patristic a notion, especially in the Greek fathers. The this uh, notion of the divinization of the human creature, and it's very, very, very much at the core of Aquinas's uh, spiritual theology of his of his uh, treatment of grace and of his Christology. That is. That uh, the, the purpose to, of human nature, to say it is to be with God, is to, is to say we must become partakers of the divine nature in some way, shape, or form. Now, what I appreciate so much about Aquinas' theology of grace is how he's able to work out a solution, a theological way of explaining, on the one hand, he doesn't want, of course, we can't admit the absurd that we cease being human and, and turn into God. But on the other hand, to affirm the real truth that we do become equal to God in a certain manner of speaking. So Aquinas actually, you know, he borrows the language from Aristotle. It's Aristotle's language that gives him the equipment, if you will, to make this. So he says, look, there are two types of changes that happen in the world. There's a substantial change. So this piece of paper, if I burn it, it turns to ash. It becomes a different kind of thing altogether. And then there's an accidental change. If I crumple it up, it's still the same piece of paper, but it's crumpled instead of smooth. The change that grace effects is like that accidental one. Think of getting tan. So when you become tan, you become like the sun. This doesn't mean you turn into the sun. You don't turn into a fireball. You turn into the, into the sun in your own fashion, in your own human fashion, insofar as your skin changes color. And so a person with tan skin shares in the nature of the sun, in the way that a person who is pale does not. So with grace, a person with grace shares in the divine nature by way of resemblance in a way that a person without grace doesn't. So we remain human, but we are truly at the same time elevated. Aquinas likes to use that word elevation. We are proportioned to God by grace while remaining human. Grace doesn't do violence to us. Augustine means that very, he does not mean become man in like turning into the sun and becoming tan, turning into, cease be, being human, turning into God. We become God-like. Well, well I agree with, with what you said about Aquinas. I mean, yeah, yeah, that's okay. And is this a problem of translation, maybe? No, it's, it's, it's for rhetorical effect. It's for dramatic rhetorical effect. If he says God became man, if God became man so that man might become God, it's, it's you know, that's a jolting way of putting it, you know, as, as, uh, as evidenced by your very question, by the fact that it disturbs you. I think Augustine wants it to disturb you, to drive home the profound truth of the matter, 
So not that he means that in the strict literal sense of the term, but there is a real way nonetheless of saying we become like God. We are elevated to God's level. And so let me use this phrase, become God, to drive that home. For the subject. That Augustine agrees with Aquinas. Yes, I'm convinced. Yeah, I don't think Augustine, I, I don't know any theologian who thinks Augustine meant that literally. I mean, that, that would be absurd anyway, because obviously a person with grace remains human. Yeah. If you, if you look at the subject of that sentence or that statement, if you look for who is making these things happen, you'll feel more comfortable. It is God. It is the grace of God. It is God making, becoming himself human. It is also God that's going to make us a part of him. It's through his grace that we get there. And that's, I, I had the same discomfort the first time I started to read that sentence. And somebody told me, it's your lack of faith. And I was shocked, so I would not tell you that. <laughs> but, 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 but eventually I convinced myself that it was my lack of faith. I'm not willing, or I was not willing to accept that God will save me, that he will have, the, that he has the power to communicate the grace to me, to become like him, to be closer to him, to live an eternity with him. It might take all the fire of purgatory, I'm sure of it, but, but eventually it will happen, and it took a leap of faith on my part to convince myself of that. I say it to my students all the time, just to, again, drive home the point. But then I can move right into this theologically adept way at, at explaining how this is the case. Just before we close, I know he has to go. Just, just one, one comment. Okay. I, I'm not even a question. I'm stuck on the Eucharist portion. And I am stuck on how beautiful it is to bring in the rational arguments and the beauty. Yeah. Uh, and I think you can make not an extension with the Eucharist, or actually a perfect parallel of this presentation, but based it on the Eucharist instead of the Incarnation. I think that every single argument that you gave, the argument of beauty, the argument of need, love, et cetera, et cetera, can be applied to the Eucharist, yeah. obviously finding the supporting quotes that correspond to it. Um, I did say that the notion of fittingness, it's, it's a current not only in his Christology, but also in his sacramental theology. Right. So, yeah, in fact, the same reasons do. You, you find the same reasons popping up in his treatment of the sacraments, especially the Eucharist. Mm -hmm.